7. When the Rocky Mountain Locust was with us, as did also the equally large flocks of golden plovers, the Bartramian Sandpiper even now is a great factor each summer in checking the increasing locusts on our prairies. The various members of the grouse family, while belonging to a grain-eating group, are certainly quite prominent as insect destroyers, especially is this so with respect to the quail, prairie hen, sharp-tailed grouse, and wild turkey all of which are occupied most of the summer months in capturing and destroying vast numbers of such insects as are found on the prairies, grasshoppers, locusts, crickets, caterpillars, and similar insects comprise the bulk of their insect food forms that are all among the most numerous as well as destructive species. In writing about these birds as insect destroyers Professor Samuel Uddy writes, I happen to be in the Republican Valley, in southwestern Nebraska, in August, 1874. When the locust invaded that region, prairie chickens and quails, that previous to their coming had a large number of seeds in their stomachs, when dissected, seemed now for a time to abandon all other kinds of food, at least from this onward for a month little else than locusts were found in their stomachs. All the birds seemed now to live solely on locusts for a while, in winter and at other times of the year when insect life is scarce and difficult to obtain. These birds feed more or less extensively upon seeds and other kinds of vegetation. Some even enter cultivated grounds and seek food that belongs to the farmer, thereby doing more or less direct injury. The extent of such injury, of course, depends upon the number of birds engaged in the depredations, and also on the time over which it is allowed to extend, if corn and other grain is harvested at the proper time. But little damage ensues, but if allowed to remain in the field throughout winter, much of the crop is liable to be taken by the birds, perhaps no other bird that frequents the farm pays higher prices for the grain it eats than does the quail, living about the hedgerows, groves, and ravines, where insect enemies gather and lurk during the greater part of the year, this bird not only seizes large numbers of these enemies daily during the summer months when they are abroad in the land, but all winter through it scratches among the fallen leaves and other rubbish that accumulates about its haunts seeking for hibernating insects of various kinds. Being a timid little creature, the quail seldom leaves cover to feed openly in the fields, and therefore does but little actual harm in the way of destroying grain. In fact it only takes stray kernels that otherwise might be lost. This bird is one of the few that feeds upon that unsavory insect the chinch bug, and the number of the pests that occasionally are destroyed by it is really astonishing. No farmer or fruit grower should ever kill a quail himself nor allow anyone else to hunt it on his premises. Our domestic fowls, save ducks and geese, from which so much direct income is derived throughout the year, belong here. It would be folly on my part to assert that they are useless to the farmer, besides furnishing eggs and meat for the table. They are great aids in keeping down a variety of noxious insects during spring, summer, and fall. The various species of doves or pigeons are not, as a rule, thought of as being especially harmful, yet repeated examinations of their stomach contents would indicate that their food seldom, if ever, consists of anything but grains and various kinds of seeds along with other particles of vegetation. The good done by these birds as destroyers of weed seeds more than pays for the harm done by them as grain eaters. Recent careful study with reference to the food habits of hawks and owls carried on by the United States Department of Agriculture go to show that these birds, with but few exceptions, are the farmer's friends rather than his enemies. It appears that the good which they accomplish in the way of destroying mice, gophers, 
rabbits and other small mammals along with great quantities of noxious insects far exceeds the possible harm they do by the occasional destruction of poultry and other birds. A critical examination of the actual contents of about 2,700 stomachs of these birds showed that only six of the 73 species found in the United States are injurious. Three of these are so rare that they need not be considered. Of the remaining three the fish hawk is only indirectly injurious, hence but two remain to be considered. This, the sharp-shinned and cooper's hawks, omitting the six species that feed largely on poultry and game, 2.212 stomachs were examined of which 56% contained mice and other small mammals, 27% insects, and only 31-2% poultry and game birds. The food habits of both the turkey vulture and carrion crow, or black vulture, are of such a nature that the destruction of these birds should be prohibited. In fact, in many of the states this is done by law. They live almost exclusively upon carrion or decomposing animal matter and in this manner aid in the prevention of diseases that might result from the presence of such filth. They may, however, be the cause of indirectly spreading dog cholera where animals that have died from this disease are left and buried or unburned. The cuckoos are among the few birds that habitually feed upon hairy caterpillars, such as the various tent-making species. They also destroy large numbers of other caterpillars, and do not object to beetles and other insects which they find among the foliage of trees. Although shy birds they are frequently seen in cities, where they do their share in protecting the shade trees from the ravages of insect defoliators, taking the woodpeckers as a family. There are few persons but who will readily admit that these birds comprise a very full group, feeding, in fact, as most of them do, upon the larvae of wood-boring insects. They can readily do much greater good for the actual number of insects destroyed than if they destroyed only those that feed upon the foliage of trees. Not infrequently will a single borer kill an entire tree if left to itself, while hundreds of foliage-feeding caterpillars of the same size have but little effect upon the appearance, to say nothing of the health, of the same tree. Mr. N. L. Beale, assistant in the Division of Ornithology and Mammalogy of the United States Department of Agriculture, in summing up the results obtained from the examination of 679 stomachs of these birds, writes as follows, in reviewing the results of these investigations and comparing one species with another, without losing sight of the fact that comparative good is not necessarily positive good, it appears that of seven species considered the downy woodpecker is the most beneficial. He then goes on to give the food habits based on contents of the stomachs of our most common species. Judged by the stomach examinations of the downy and hairy woodpecker and flicker it would be hard to find three other species of our common birds with fewer harmful qualities. The flicker is one of our most common woodpeckers in Nebraska and does much towards keeping down a number of different kinds of insects. It is very fond of ants as a diet, in fact is partial to them, and this element forms almost half of its entire food supply during the year. It also occasionally feeds upon the chinch bug as can be attested by the fact that the stomach of a specimen killed near Lincoln contained in the vicinity of 1,000 of these bugs. It is also a fruit eater to the extent of about one quarter of its entire bill of fare. But nature, not man, furnishes the supply. It takes the wild kinds in preference to those that are cultivated. The whippoorwill, nighthawk, and swifts feed entirely on insects, and must consequently be classed among the beneficial birds. They all capture their prey while upon the wing and naturally destroy large numbers of troublesome kinds. The various species of flycatchers, as the name implies, destroy insects which they capture for the most part while on the wing. 
Flies and allied insects are quite prominent on their bill of fare, but these by no means are the only kinds of insects destroyed by them. Many a luckless locust, butterfly, moth or even beetle is snapped up and devoured by the different species of the family. The bee bird, or kingbird as it is more frequently called, sometimes even catches bees. These latter, however, consist largely of drones, hence comparatively little harm is done. One should be unprejudiced in order to write a fair biography of even a bird, or group of birds. To say that I am without such prejudice with reference to some of the members of the family of birds now to be considered, would be a falsehood. Still, I shall endeavor to give as unbiased testimony as possible with reference to their food habits at least, and let the reader judge for himself as to what would be the proper treatment for these birds, taking the family as a whole that which is made up of birds like the crows, ravens, magpies, jays, nutcrackers, camp robbers, etc. Though some of them have unenviable names and reputations at least, are not at all as bad as we are sometimes requested to believe them to be. The crows, ravens, magpies, and immediate relatives are what might be termed omnivorous in food habits, eating everything that comes their way. Crows, however, have been shown to feed largely on insects, which in great measure at least, offsets the harm done in other directions. They also feed on various substances the removal of which is for the general good. The raven is too rare a bird in the state to be taken into consideration in respect to food habits, and the magpie certainly can be put out of the question of doing any possible harm for the same reason. This leaves then to be considered, the jays, of which we seem to have six or seven distinct kinds, but only two of these are at all common. The blue jay is found over the entire state, and is familiar to everybody. The second species is found only in the western and northwestern portions among the pine forests, and is known as the Pinon Jay or Camp Robber, the latter name not very flattering to the bird I must confess. The Blue Jay does much of the mischief that is laid at the door of the robin, orioles, thrushes, and other birds, and then sneaks away unobserved. He also destroys large numbers of insects and robs the nest of some small birds, in the bobolink, meadowlark, orioles, and blackbirds. We have some of the most important insect destroyers among the feathered tribes. The bobolink is with us only during the summer months when it is entirely insectivorous, and the same can be said of the cowbird, although the latter has the bad habit of compelling other birds to rear its young. In the red-winged blackbird we have a friend that we little dream of when we see the large flocks gathering about our cornfields during late summer, and early fall. During the balance of the year it is engaged most of the time in waging war on various insect pests including such forms as the grub worms, cut worms, grasshoppers, army worm, beet caterpillar, etc. Even when it visits our corn fields it more than pays for the corn it eats by the destruction of the worms that lurk under the husks of a large percent of the ears in every field. Several years ago the beet fields in the vicinity of Grand Island were threatened great injury by a certain caterpillar that had nearly defoliated all the beets growing in many of them. At about this time large flocks of this bird appeared and after a week's sojourn the caterpillar plague had vanished, it having been converted into bird tissues. Numerous of their records of the efficiency of their labor as destroyers of insect pests might be quoted in favor of this bird, but I do not believe this to be necessary, although considerable evidence has been recorded of its destroying both fruits and grains. The Baltimore Oriole has received such a bad reputation here in Nebraska as a great thief during the past few years that I feel inclined to give extra time and space in endeavoring to clear him of such an unenviable charge. This, however, 
I hardly think necessary when the facts in the case are known, as insect destroyers both the spurt and the orchard oriole have had an undisputed reputation for many years, and the kinds of insects destroyed by both are of such a class as to count greatly in their favor. Caterpillars and beetles belonging to injurious species comprising 96% of the food of three specimens killed is the record we have in their favor. On the other hand, grapes have been punctured only, presumably by this bird, since he has so frequently been found in the vineyard and must be the culprit. Now I myself have seen the oriole in apple orchards under compromising circumstances, and have heard pretty strong evidence to the effect that it will occasionally puncture ripe apples. It also belongs in the same family with some generally accepted rascals, hence I will admit that possibly some of the charges with which he is credited may be true, but I still believe that most of the injuries to grapes in this and other states must be laid to the English sparrow. If we take pains to water our birds during the dry seasons they will be much less apt to seek this supply from the juices of fruits that are so temptingly near at hand. Place little pans of water in the orchard and vineyard where the birds can visit them without fear of being seized by the house cat or knocked over by a missile from the alert, small boy. And I am sure that the injury to fruit, to a great extent at least, will cease. Recent investigations tend to prove that the grackle or crow blackbird does more good than harm and should be protected. Our sparrows and their lives, taken together, form a very extensive family of very beautiful as well as full birds, like the warblers. They occupy themselves with searching for and destroying insects all summer long, but this is not all they do that is good. In fall, winter, and early spring, when Mother Earth has lost her brilliant green and rests in somber browns or beneath ice and snow, the longspurs, snow bunning, snowbird, and some of the sparrows that have remained with us are busily engaged in gathering for themselves a living. They hop and fly about from place to place searching for and picking up little seeds of grass, grain and weeds, of shrubs and trees, and appropriating the same to their use, chirping merrily as they work away. The European house sparrow, or the English sparrow as it is more commonly called, has the worst reputation of the entire family, but even this bird has some redeeming traits. The tanagers are insect destroyers, feeding for the most part on such forms as attack the foliage of trees. All of our swallows are insect destroyers, capturing such forms as gnats, flies, etc. which they seize while on the wing. The large colonies of different species of these birds that breed within the state, as well as those that pass through during their migrations, destroy great numbers of these insects. They should be protected. The waxwings, both the cedar bird and bohemian waxwing, feed principally upon berries, etc. which they find throughout the year. Still, in his studies of the food contents of the stomachs of a variety of birds taken in a certain orchard that was overrun with canker worms, Professor Forbes found that the seven specimens of the cedar waxwing had eaten nothing but canker worms and a few dying beetles, the latter in such small numbers as to scarcely count. The number of caterpillars eaten by each bird ranged from 70 to 101. The shrikes or butcher birds are known as veritable brigands or pirates when it comes to the destruction of other forms of life. They are true to their name and butcher for pastime large numbers of insects, mice, lizards, small snakes, and even a few birds. They then fly to some thorn bush or barbed wire fence and impale the luckless victim and leave it for future use or to dry up and finally blow away. The good they do will outweigh the harm. The food of the various greenlets or vireos is made up almost entirely of insects, of which a large percent are caterpillars, such as infest shade trees and the larger shrubs. 
they should be protected and encouraged, about the orchard in particular, in the words of that pleasing writer, Dr. Elliot Cause, the warblers have we always with us, all in their own good time, they come out of the south, pass on, return, and are away again, their appearance and withdrawal scarcely less than a mystery, many stay with us all summer long, and some brave the winters in our midst, some of these slight creatures, guided by unerring instinct, travel through to the meridian in the hours of darkness, slipping past like a thief in the night, stopping at daybreak from their lofty nights to arrest and recruit for the next stage of the journey, others pass more leisurely from tree to tree, in a ceaseless tide of migration, gleaning as they go, the hardier males, in full song and plumage, lead the way for the weaker females and yearlings, with tireless industry do the warblers befriend the human race, their unconscious zeal plays to part in the nice adjustment of nature's forces, helping to bring about the balance of vegetable and insect life without which agriculture would be in vain. They visit the orchard when the apple and pear, the peach, plum, and cherry are in bloom, seeming to revel carelessly amid the sweet-scented and delicately tinted blossoms, but never faltering in their good work. They peer into the crevices of the bark, scrutinize each leaf, and explore the very heart of the buds, to detect drag forth, and destroy those tiny creatures, singly insignificant, collectively a scourge, which prey upon the hopes of the fruit grower, and which, if undisturbed, would bring his care to naught. Some warblers flit incessantly in the terminal foliage of the tallest trees, others hug close to the scored trunks and gnarled boughs of the forest kings, some peep from the thicket, coppice, the impenetrable mantle of shrubbery that decks tiny water courses, playing at hide-and-seek with all comers, others more humble still, descend to the ground, where they glide with pretty mincing steps and affected turning of the head this way and that, their delicate flesh-tinted feet just stirring the layer of withered leaves with which a past season carpeted the ground, we may seek warblers everywhere in the season, we shall find them a continued surprise, all mood and circumstance is theirs, key to North American birds, page 288. Much could be written concerning the food habits of the various members of the group of thrushes, mockingbirds and wrens. Three of the species at least are known to be more or less destructive to fruits, viz. catbird, brown thrasher, and mockingbird. Still, if we take into account what these birds eat during the entire time spent within the state, the balance sheet stands in favor of the birds as insect destroyers. The wrens are preeminently insect destroyers, and the others are not much behind them in this respect. The members of the family of nuthatches and its feed for the most part on insects, but we lack very definite figures regarding the kinds and numbers of insects that each destroys. We can be sure, however, that any favors shown them will not be thrown away. The thrushes, solitaires, bluebirds, etc. are all beneficial as insect destroyers, and might be well compared with the robin, which is described quite fully beyond, only they are even less liable to commit injuries to fruits. The robin has certainly been accused often enough of being a first-class rascal to warrant the belief that there must be at least some grounds for such accusations being made. In his examination of 114 stomachs of this bird, taken during 10 months of the year, Professor Forbes, of Illinois, found the contents to consist of 65% insects and 34% of fruits and seeds. In the estimates of these food percentages taken by the robin, as well as by other birds, Bulk for bulk is taken, i.e. a quart of caterpillars or other insects is equivalent to a quart of cherries or a quart of berries. Professor Forbes asks this question, will the destruction of 17 quarts of average caterpillars, 
including at least 8 quarts of cut worms, pay for 24 quarts of cherries, blackberries, currants, and grapes, and then answers it in these words, to this question I for my own part, can only reply that I do not believe that the horticulturist can sell his small fruits anywhere in the ordinary markets of the world at so high a price as to the robin, provided that he uses proper diligence that the little huckster doesn't overreach him in the bargain. Much more might be said in favor of the robin had I the time and space at my command. After having carefully scanned the foregoing notes concerning the food habits of our birds we cannot afford to continue indifferent to our treatment of them. Nor can we even allow our neighbors to kill them though we ourselves have decided to reform in this respect. We must work for a change of heart in our neighbors also. The scissor beak from a journal of researches, etc. By Charles Darwin. It has short legs, web feet extremely long plump wings, and is about the size of a turn. The beak is flattened laterally. That island in a plane at right angles to that of a spoonbill or duck. It is as flat and elastic as an ivory paper cutter, and the lower mandible, differently from every other bird, is an inch and a half longer than the upper, in a lake near Maldonado, from which the water had been nearly drained, and which, in consequence, swarmed with small fry. I saw several of these birds, generally in small flocks, flying rapidly backwards and forwards close to the surface of the lake. They kept their bills wide open, and the lower mandible half buried in the water, thus skimming the surface. They plowed it in their course, the water was quite smooth, and it formed a most curious spectacle to behold a flock, each bird leaving its narrow wake on the mirror-like surface. In their flight they frequently twist about with extreme quickness and dexterously manage with their projecting lower mandible to plow up small fish, which are secured by the upper and shorter half of their scissor-like bills. This fact I repeatedly saw, as, like swallows, they continued to fly backwards and forwards close before me. Occasionally when leaving the surface of the water their flight was wild, irregular and rapid, then they uttered loud harsh cries. When these birds are fishing, the advantage of the long primary feathers of their wings, in keeping them dry, is very evident, when thus employed, their forms resemble the symbol by which many artists represent marine birds, their tails are much used in steering their irregular course, these birds are common far inland along the course of the Rio Paraná, it is said that they remain here during the whole year, and breed in the marshes, during the day they rest in flocks on the grassy plains, at some distance from the water, being at anchor, as I have said, in one of the deep creeks between the islands of Paraná. As the evening drew to a close, one of these scissor beaks suddenly appeared. The water was quite still, and many little fish were rising. The bird continued for a long time to skin the surface, flying in its wild and irregular manner up and down the narrow canal, now dark with the growing night and the shadows of the overhanging trees. At Montevideo, I observed that some large flocks during the day remained on the mud banks at the head of the harbor in the same manner as on the grassy plains near the Paraná, and every evening they took flight seaward. From these facts I suspect that the ringcocks generally fishes by night, at which time many of the lower animals come most abundantly to the surface. M. Lassen states that he has seen these birds opening the shells of the McTray buried in the sandbanks on the coast of Chile, from their weak bills, with the lower mandible so much projecting, their short legs and long wings. It is very improbable that this can be a general habit. This day I shot a condor, it measured from tip to tip of the wings eight and a half feet, and from beak to tail, four feet. This bird is known to have a wide geographical range, being found on the west coast of South America, 
from the Strait of Magellan along the Cordillera as far as 8 degrees north of the equator. The steep cliff near the mouth of the Rio Negro is its northern limit on the Patagonian coast, and they had there wandered about 400 miles from the great central line of their habitation in the Andes. Further south, among the bold precipices at the head of Port Desire, the condor is not in common, yet only a few stragglers occasionally visit the seacoast. A line of cliff near the mouth of the Santa Cruz is frequented by these birds, and about 80 miles up the river, where the sides of the valley are formed by steep basaltic precipices, the condor reappears. From these facts, it seems that the condors require perpendicular cliffs. In Chile, they haunt, during the greater part of the year, the lower country near the shores of the Pacific, and at night several roost together in one tree, but in the early part of summer, they retire to the most inaccessible parts of the inner cordilleras, there to breed in peace, with respect to their propagation. I was told by the country people in Chile that the condor makes no sort of nest, but in the months of November and December lays two large white eggs on a shelf of bare rock. It is said that the young condors cannot fly for an entire year, and long after they are able, they continue to roost by night, and hunt with their parents. The old birds generally live in pairs, but among the inland basaltic cliffs of the Santa Cruz, I found a spot, where scores must usually haunt, on coming suddenly to the brow of the precipice. It was a grand spectacle to see between 20 and 30 of these birds start heavily from their resting place, and wheel away in majestic circles, from the quantity of dung on the rocks. They must long have frequented this place for roosting and breeding, having gorged themselves with carrion on the plains below. They retire to these favorite ledges to digest their food. From these facts, the condor, like the Golanazo, must to a certain degree be considered as a gregarious bird. In this part of the country they live altogether on the guanacos which have died a natural death, or, as more commonly happens, have been killed by the pumas. I believe, from what I saw in Patagonia, they do not on ordinary occasions extend their daily excursions to any great distance from their regular sleeping places. The condors may oftentimes be seen at a great height, soaring over a certain spot in the most graceful circles. On some occasions I am sure that they do this only for pleasure, but on others, the Chilindo countryman tells you that they are watching a dying animal, or the puma devouring its prey. If the condors glide down, and then suddenly all rise together, the Chilindo knows that it is the puma which, watching the carcass, has sprung out to drive away the robbers, besides feeding on carrion. The condors frequently attack young goats and lambs, and the shepherd dogs are trained, whenever they pass over, to run out, and looking upwards to bark violently, the chilenos destroy and catch numbers. Two methods are used, one is to place a carcass on a level piece of ground within an enclosure of sticks with an opening, and when the condors are gorged, to gallop up on horseback to the entrance, and thus enclose them, for when this bird has not space to run. It cannot give its body sufficient momentum to arise from the ground. The second method is to mark the trees in which, frequently to the number of five or six together, they roost, and then at night to climb up and noose them. They are such heavy sleepers, as I had myself witnessed, that this is not a difficult task. At Valparaiso, I have seen a living condor sold for sixpence, but the common price is eight or ten shillings. One which I saw brought in had been tied with rope, and was much injured, yet, the moment the line was cut by which its bill was secured, although surrounded by people, it began ravenously to tear a piece of carrion. In a garden at the same place, between twenty and thirty were kept alive. They were fed only once a week, but they appeared in pretty good health. 
the Chilano countrymen assert that the condor will live, and retain its vigor, between five and six weeks without eating, I cannot answer for the truth of this, but it is a cruel experiment, which very likely has been tried, when an animal is killed in the country, it is well known that the condors, like other carrion vultures, soon gain intelligence of it, and congregate in an inexplicable manner, in most cases it must not be overlooked, that the birds have discovered their prey, and have picked the skeleton clean, before the flesh is in the least degree tainted, remembering the experiments of M. Audubon, on the little smelling powers of carrion hawks, I tried in the above-mentioned garden the following experiment, the condors were tied, each by a rope, in a long row at the bottom of a wall, and having folded up a piece of meat in white paper, I walked backwards and forwards, carrying it in my hand at the distance of about three yards from them, but no notice whatever was taken. I then threw it on the ground, within one yard of an old male bird, he looked at it for a moment with attention, but then regarded it no more, with a stick I pushed it closer and closer, until at last he touched it with his beak, the paper was then instantly torn off with fury, and at the same moment, every bird in the long row began struggling and flapping its wings, under the same circumstances, it would have been quite impossible to have deceived a dog. The evidence in favor of and against the acute-smelling powers of carrion vultures is singularly balanced. Professor Owen has demonstrated that the olfactory nerves of the turkey buzzard cathertes or are highly developed, and on the evening when Mr. Owen's paper was read at the Zoological Society, it was mentioned by a gentleman that he had seen the carrion hawks in the West Indies on two occasions collect on the roof of a house, when a corpse had become offensive from not having been buried, in this case. The intelligence could hardly have been acquired by sight. On the other hand, besides the experiments of Audubon and that one by myself, Mr. Bachman has tried in the United States many varied plans, showing that neither the turkey buzzard the species dissected by Professor Owen nor the Golanasso find their food by smell. He covered portions of highly offensive offal with a thin canvas cloth, and strewed pieces of meat on it, these the carrion voo. 